Professor Forever. I am the Professor Forever. This is Professor Forever. This is Professor Forever. La, 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 la. That's how I warm up before I turn on record. Just thought I'd share. You know, I do miss seeing you. I wish I could see all of you. When I ran a show in Chicago and when I taught, I felt like I had a great energy with the audience. I guess because they were there. That is the realization that I'm coming to. That maybe this gift that I have of connecting in a really strong bond can only be accomplished if I'm in person. So I wish I. We're with you in person. Just wanted to tell you that. I'm going to set the scene where I am so it can help you see me. So I'm sitting at a desk in a room. To my left is a bookshelf and a weight hanging off of my microphone boom. And then there's an old brother printer paper on top. There is a closet in front of me, the door of which is open right in front of me and has many fluffy clothes hanging up. This was something that my friend Andre told me to do to help buffer this room. Also helping me buffer this room are little buffering segments the kind that you put baffling segments, the kind you put on the wall. My preamp is to my left, next to a water thermos, next to a wonderful bendable action figure of Major Matt Mason given to me by my neighborhood and still lovely friend Richard. I talked about him in an earlier podcast about our haunts, haunt-ins that we used to put on for our neighborhood and beyond. Of course, there is a zero sugar Pepsi in front of me. Those of you who know me know that I am addicted to Pepsi. There are ghost searching implements in front of me as well. And a volume of Emily Dickinson's work and Sewell's biography of her and a literary riches, witches, oracle, tarot card set. To my right is a sectionable 
play floor. That's the only way I can describe it. I don't know how they describe it. It has pull-out animals on it. You put it together as large as you want it on your floor so that you can get on the floor with a child. And that is for my nephew, Bennett J., for when he visits. Hi, Ben. That's what I see. So I used to say in my classroom, please change your seat today. I tried to do that at least once a semester, but more than that if I could. Because it's good to see something that you see repeated, but from a different angle. And I think that might be the concept of what this podcast is about, even though I didn't realize it until right now. But before I get into that, seeing things from a different angle, I just want to say I lost a friend this past week. It wasn't a friend that I saw all the time or talked to all the time. I saw him a lot more when I lived in Chicago but it struck me very hard and he was young and he was a fantastic person and staying true to the concept of my podcast called to bring forth. I would like to tell you a story about my friend so that he can live again. If only for a brief moment, I met Tony when I took a job with the Chicago Trolley Company. I need to tell more stories about work. Bing, note to self that I just shared with you. Okay, he was a trolley driver as well. And he then went on to become an international tour guide for international charters and was fabulous at it. But at this time, we were both just lowly trolley drivers. But I remember, so the trolley company had maybe 50 drivers at the time that I worked there, late 90s. Three were women and all the rest were men. If you got a charter assigned to you for the day, that was great news because, well, it depended on what kind of charter, but usually with a charter, you would get good tips. Better tips than from average tourists just getting on your tour bus. A charter would be a fleet of trolleys going to a specific place to take people, for example, from a conference to their hotel. And so you would get tips from the people organizing these conferences and these trolley fleets, these charters, they would be very generous. Anyway, so you would get that note in the morning when you came to the barn, which is what they called the place base where you kept your trolleys and say 10 trolleys would be assigned to a charter. Eight of them, and I'm on this charter. Okay, so imagine that. So I'm the ninth and my friend Tony is the 10th. The other eight trolleys driven by men in their 20s who were very 
car oriented, I guess I want to say, I don't know, power oriented. Um, they would rev up their trolleys and be out of that barn going to that location. And they would drive to this obscure location in Chicago at 100 miles an hour down Lakeshore Drive. Who would beat who? That's what they were thinking as they were driving these rickety trolleys, which are very long. You know, you had to get a CDL license to work there. Anyway, I would think, oh, my God, I am so bad at directions. How am I ever going to find this spot where we're supposed to, I forget what the word is, stage. That's it. Where we're supposed to stage my trolley. And yet... There at the end of the driveway, with his trolley gently rumbling and idling, would be Tony, waiting for moi, because he knew I would have trouble finding that location. Instead of zooming off with all the other people, all the other men, competitively, Tony would be sitting there waiting for me. And then he would sit at the staging area and read books about foreign lands, knowing, or perhaps at that point, not knowing that he was going to be making a living out of traveling to those lands and explaining wonderful landscapes and artifacts to eager ears. R.I.P. Tony Domino. Those of you who know me know I have no trouble diving into the past. <laughs> As a matter of fact, it's something that I'm trying, I'm struggling with. Do I do it too much? <sighs> anyway, I did watch a wonderful documentary. Maybe on Netflix, maybe on Prime. I have so many streaming things. I can't keep them straight. Sorry, people. Becoming Cousteau. Oh, my God, did that bring me back. That television show. Now I can't. Underwater Adventures with Jacques Cousteau. Is that what it was called? I can't remember. But they had segments from that 60s show on this documentary. And boy, did I love that show when I was a kid. You know. I knew that Jacques Cousteau was very important in the world of sea conservation, ocean conservation, ocean exploration, but I didn't know how much so until I watched that documentary. And so I'm not going to tell you any more about that. I think you should watch it if you're a friend, if you're a fan or friend of Jacques Cousteau. And even if you're not, if you like underwater footage, which by the way, was maybe not invented underwater photography, maybe not invented by Jacques Cousteau and Louis Mall, but certainly innovated by them. And their wonderful movie from the 50s. Not wonderful. Great achievement, this movie. And that was The Silent World, made in the late 50s. And actually, that is something I wanted to talk about. Later in his life, Jacques Cousteau was talking about that first documentary he made 
in the sea, talking about how he had changed his perspective. It was hard for him to watch later in his life because of one scene in particular. And that was they saw, he and his divers saw sharks feeding on a baby whale. And it just angered them so much that they pulled the sharks up on board and they battered them to death. And that footage is in that that movie. And he said, I, I can't watch it now. I, I wasn't thinking about the balance of nature. And now I know that that was a horrible thing to do. So I think about these things a lot, right? I had a couple of moments when I was a crazy child, and you know why I was crazy? The grand event where I did not treat my pets as I should have. So I am often thinking about animal cruelty. I stopped eating red meat because, and I have slipped up, I will admit, but overall, I have put away red meat because I just don't want to be a part of the slaughtering of cows for the most part. So I am often thinking, how can I help my animals? How can I help the animals in my yard, my birds, that I have a, a perchio made by the lovely, lovely egg, who, by the way, put together the theme song for this podcast, and Andrea, his lovely partner, who sang, sings the song, if you listen to it every week. Thank you, guys. Anyway, egg built me this, like, Perchio. It's an open aviary for my yard. I think about the birds that come there. Am I doing the right thing? Am I doing the wrong thing? I used to think, and I think other people believe, that it is wrong to feed birds in the wild. But David Sibley, whose books I own, who I think is the foremost expert on ornithology, tells me it's not true. That's a myth, that if you put feed in a bird feeder, the birds will become dependent on it. Myth, they just use it as an extra treat. And I trust David Sibley. Anyway, I'm thinking about this a lot. And am I doing the wrong thing? Not because I am giving them these treats, but am I bringing them to a place where maybe the baby hawk in my neighborhood could find them? These are thoughts going through my mind a lot. As I was thinking about these things, I came across an article about the Wild Animal Initiative. Say what you will about some millennials. The millennials that I have taught seem to be doing great things for the world. I did not teach this millennial, Michelle Graham, who founded this Wild Animal Initiative. 
But I would say she certainly doesn't fit some stereotypes of lazy, privileged millennials. Anyway, Oxford graduate. From what I understand, she was doing her dissertation on flying snakes. She felt like she was trying to educate people on how better to know about this species, brought them into a really, really nice facility to do her research, and they all died. That got her thinking. Even as humans try to do the right things for wild animals, are we doing the wrong things? She thought about it, thought about it, and then founded this initiative. And I'm telling you, it is oh, such a utopian idea. I'm still untangling it in my mind. Michelle Graham and her colleagues feel that not only should we protect the animals in the wild, we should do proactive measures as humans to help prevent cruelty in nature. I'll say that again in a different way. The Wild Animal Initiative wants to try to use human thought and how we think to problem solve some of the, what we would call balance of nature issues in the wild. So instead of moving to the perspective that Jacques Cousteau did near the end of his life, which was, why am I feeling this one way, wanting to, because of a gut feeling, interrupt nature's process? She's saying, let's interrupt nature's process. For example, one example I can think of, she said, or her initiative says, there is a place where these rare penguins are eaten and they might go extinct. So what the Wild Animal Initiative could do is place little packs of wild dogs there to scare off the predators. Now, I'm sure, just like I was, all of these possibilities are unfurling in your mind. Oh, my God. So then if they don't get eaten, what does that mean about the population of this rare bird? And then what, you know. And I'm sure the people at the Wild Animal Initiative have thought very deeply about this. Um, man, it just makes my head spin. And I am going to find out more about it. Because even though I certainly want to abolish cruelty for animals in any sense I could think of, I had never thought about doing proactive things to kind of change nature with our intellect in order to decrease the cruelty of nature. It's just an amazing idea. Utopian, for sure. And I'm sure a lot of Pragmatists will say, no way. But I don't know. I have faith in some of these millennials. So if that interests you, you know, 
I have said before, I should not have gone to college when I did, when I was 18. I remember right before I got accepted at Miami and got my scholarship, I talked to a guidance counselor about joining the Coast Guard. And that was because of Jacques Cousteau. Thank you, Jacques Cousteau. I didn't do it, but I love the ocean and I love snorkeling. I am afraid of scuba for some reason. I think it's my asthma. Did I ever tell you that story? Oh my God. I tried to scuba and I could not let myself drop underwater. I just could not. They put so much weight on me to try to make my body overcome my mind. And I was like a Hercules. I could stay above water with an extra 200 pounds on me. It was amazing. But I do love to snorkel. And I love seeing the coral reef, which you love, Jacques Cousteau. So I've also brought forward Jacques Cousteau. And painted a picture of what he was like. I hope some of you want to investigate his life and work more thoroughly. All right. A trolley story before I close for this week. One day, I was sitting, staging, at a place where I was going to start the day. So we had different stops where you would, you know, and the way the trolley company would set you up is that you were all intervaled out. And I was stopped on Michigan Avenue in front of something. I don't, I don't remember what the, I was supposed to start work at 8 AM and I was there at 7:40. And Inside the trolley with me was the salesperson who was in charge of selling tickets for that spot. And I had the door closed. And some people were standing outside waiting for the trolley to begin operating. It was not unusual for this to happen. I saw it all the time. And I was just sitting there and maybe smoking. Who knows? I smoked then. Um, and talking with my my colleague, and this I heard this huge rap on my door, and I looked down and it's this woman cop. So I open up the door and she said, "These people are waiting for a tour." And I said, "I know. We begin at eight o'clock." And she said, "You're going to let them on the trolley right now." Now it wasn't winter, um, and I wasn't really on the clock yet. But this cop was very angry that I had not opened the door for these tourists. I have a long, sordid history with cops. <laughs> no, it's not what you think. And I will be telling some stories about it. But I really felt her attitude just wrap inside me. I didn't like it. I felt like she was trying to push me around. That's what I felt like. I opened the door. I let those people on. Of course, I just shut the door. And because I was angry, I did not start talking to the tourists until 8 o'clock. But 
every time I saw that cop for the next three years or however long I worked for the trolley company after that, if our eyes locked, she would point at me and narrow her eyes. And as some of you know, the reason that I had to leave the trolley company was not because I hit someone, but because there was a spy from the city on my trolley who heard me tell a joke about the mayor. I always feel like that cop was involved. Somehow, I can see her right now. Rest in peace, Chicago cop. I don't know if you're alive or dead, but chill out. Thanks for listening. Keep thinking. She's got no lessons planned for me Because she's not that fancy She's a professor forever Professor forever Professor forever